Hello, I'm Tim Marlowe, Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts, and this event was part of the Festival of Ideas, an inspiring lineup of talks and debates with innovators from across the arts, brought to you from the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome everybody on uh, this lovely Sunday afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us here. Um, my name's Kate Goodwin and I'm the Head of Architecture at the Royal Academy. But I also had a lovely opportunity um, not very long ago on the side of my job as curator here to work on two projects with Thomas here. The first um, was a project which was looking at the making of the Shanghai Expo Pavilion. I don't know if many of you remember, I think Thomas has a picture here, but it was this, this building. Um, and it was such an extraordinary building, um, but one that was temporary. And the British Council decided that they wanted to kind of, to, to mark this process and to look at it. And um, I had this fabulous opportunity to go through the archive and to understand how the building had come about. You know, it's these, uh, as it was, as you can see there, it was nicknamed the dandelion by the Chinese for obvious reasons. Um, the inside, I think Thomas called it the Sikh Cathedral because at the end of each of these um, 60,000 um, acrylic rods that were seven and a half metres long was half a million seeds from the World um, Seed Bank. Um, and what I found in doing this project and in talking to Thomas and going through the archive was just what really impressed me was actually how far you have to pursue an idea. You have to keep challenging it and how far this studio went from the making process to reveal and to create something which was truly extraordinary. And I think it was something like the most seen image or something of 2010. So it's kind of reach, kind of didn't just impress me, but I think impressed half the world. Um, my second chance um, to work with Thomas was a few years later um, when the British Council decided again to do a tour which, um, of his work in an exhibition which went through East Asia. And um, it was a really interesting moment for the studio. So this is about 2014-15. As you, you know, there'd been the cauldron um, at the London Olympics which had wowed the world. Um, suddenly, you know, our, our streets here in London were full of the Routemaster bus moving through. There'd been the exhibition down at the V&A at that same moment. Um, but it was also the moment at which the first big, as I think you called it your proper building because it had fire stairs and all of those things <laughs> into it, but it was being built. So we opened the exhibition in Singapore and um, this proper building actually launched at the same time. It couldn't have been better timing. I mean, to actually, when you're doing a show about architecture and work, to have the building just down the road was a fantastic thing and um, I mean, I'm just seeing these I think what's really nice about um, architecture often is you know how it comes to be lived you know I saw this building when it was opened and seeing it kind of now covered in greenery is quite wonderful I mean Thomas you must find that when you go to see your buildings and see how they're it's decided to turn off let me just try one more time <laughs> it got bored oh we've got a black screen um but it, is, I, I, it, it, was a, it was a wonderful moment um, when... Oh, sorry. Tech. I, I can mime. Yeah. <laughs> you can mime very well. And the building's like this. Yeah. And there's green coming yeah. out of it. Yeah. We got told that that looked like dim sum baskets, but that wasn't the idea at the time. You know, those bamboo um, basket things. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's, it's a learning hub um, for the Nanyang University, isn't it? And I think what, you, what was so remarkable about the project was that you were thinking about, you know, how, what sort of building people need for learning. So it was that, so, I mean, what always impressed me is the kind of way in which you go through a process of inquiry, of thinking, of interrogating a brief. I think this is quite a lot of how we're thinking about the exhibition, was that kind of interrogating a brief. At whatever scale project you're working at, it's kind of getting underneath it, asking the questions of it, and then thinking about, sort of the next process by way of making, so testing through its physicality, through materiality. Um, and the other aspect that has always struck me is this line of storytelling which comes out, that a building and, or whatever you're doing has to have a kind of sense of some story that captivates you. Um, I mean, the dull, the dull thing is that we see all the projects as problem-solving. And so for, with the university project, um, it was... <coughs> The, the, the problem was that the triumph of um, the digital revolution, so everyone's got their gadgets, 
um, you used to have to go to university because that's where all the books were. Um, and you had to go to university because that's where the computers were, where you could write the essay with those books. And now that we've all got our gadgets in our bags and pockets, you can stay in bed and get a PhD. <laughs> and so um, it seemed that, actually, why go? And when we were having the first conversations with the professors and sort of talking to them about this, um, we, um, the, the key thing seemed to be, well, the only reason to go is to meet people. Uh, that, and that is the critical difference, hopefully, between your bed and uh, a university. Um, and uh, so, you know, trying to design, design a space that brought people together. Um, and so the... the um, let me just see if I've got there. So we were trying to make the... the um, if I... The, the, you know, we, we, so many of us have spent time in polystyrene ceiling-tiled corridors, and there were two miles of that in the existing university, no daylight, and our building was supposed to be 24 hours, so it just felt, well, how do you actually feel safe sending your 17-year-old there, and how do you design an environment um, that does make space for them? So, I mean, we would, all these, we tried to design as many nooks and crannies, but they are visible nooks and crannies, um, and so it, it, it was... Um, uh, just trying to make a device that would bring people together while allowing the necessary privacy in the classrooms themselves. But our budget was uh, only a little bit more than for a car park. So what you're looking at was all, we had to, everything had to be car, uh, concrete. We had to fall in love with concrete. So it was just how can we love concrete? And um, so things like the, um, what, you see, what you see here, this, the, the concrete, that we worked with an artist who did... Uh, seven, more, almost 800 ink drawings. And because we knew, because the building was so, uh, the, the budget was so low, we knew that we would have to work with the cheapest contractor, not the best value. And the cheapest concrete would have bubbles and stones and the formwork that the concrete is cast against would be misaligned. And so we just thought, how, do you, how can we make the... There's a Japanese architect called... Um, Tado Ando, who has done the most incredible concrete that's polished and you could sort of rub your face against it with its perfection. And in a way, uh, designers and architects, we have all aspired to that perfection. But when you know you're getting rough-as-a-dog concrete, sort of how can you make that a feature? So in a way, overwhelming the stains and dribbles and stones and bubbles with a, with a detail like this was important. So in each project, we get kind of trying to be like... Um, you know, it, before the fancy pants smartphones, when there were the um, digital cameras, and where you'd, whenever you went somewhere with it, where there was a vague touristic dimension, you would always hear them going as people were zooming in and out. And in my, that's sort of stuck in my head as a noise, even though they don't make that noise any, anymore, the phones, but that your job as the design team is to pull back and see the strategic whole, but have the ability to zoom in, because unless the close-up matters, the, the, a strategy is not beautiful if it isn't manifested in a, a kind of love at the smallest scale. Um, so that was um, some of the things we wrestled with with concrete. Um, and this, these were just... Um, I only got these pictures three days ago from uh, Singapore, where... where uh, we just got these pictures as it's, it's four years old now, so the building's kind of getting, as we always wanted, you know, really overgrown with plants and... Um, uh, whoops. Overgrownness. This will probably bust the iPad again. <laughs> Technology. Um, if I can... Because we're, we're here for the Festival of Ideas, and at the heart of a lot of the festival has been an idea of creativity. So I thought I might start with a really horrifically broad and big question, but maybe just sort of jump into it. You know, what does creativity entail for you? Ah, I know. Get in, get in, <laughs> well, <laughs> get in at the um, beginning. We, we had a, an, an interesting experience in Paris at the moment. We are working in a competition for a, a master plan on the, in the 13th arrondissement uh, next to the Peripherique on both sides of it. 
And there, Paris is in this moment where it's got wind in its sails and is really confident and trying to do things. And I, I, it made me laugh because there was a jury who've been, who were, we were presenting to, and they're being presented to by lots and lots of teams. And the whole thing is called, I think it's Paris Invent. And at one point, I heard someone go, oh, bloody invention. I'm sick of all this invention. And I just thought, wow, that's, a that's an interesting time. You know, the time I grew up in, in the 70s and 80s, it felt like that was uh, not a thing to, to be so cherished. And yet, that's what we're all, inter we're all interested in, ideas. But um, it felt that there was no course you could study called inventing. And the word mad was attached to the word inventor. <laughs> Um, and, and yet now it's a currency that's even become passé. Okay, let's become glamorous to, to repeat mm. or something. So I don't what know does inventing the... mean to you? Um, well, I, I think humans are interested in what the future is and, in, and spot ideas. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in the sort of intuition that everybody has about things mm. and we try in the studio to to work with that um, in that try to design projects that might be interesting to, to someone who's got three degrees but also to somebody who's who's maybe never thought they were interested in because I think everyone notices and responds in different ways to the world around them and, and um, so I think um, uh, we, we, this thing about this digital revolution thing that I find really interesting is I, I am astonished that our studio is having the chances to do the projects we're doing at the moment. Really, really astonished. Because the 1980s, and it felt that there was a real resistance. I think that there was a feeling that fingers had been burnt by the modern movement mm. and post-war and that buildings needed to be in keeping. And there was a feeling you'd, that, that it was a risky thing to do, to, to do these sort of silly ideas somehow. And, um, and the, the, so there were lots of this sort of burnt fingers go back to history feeling. And then now with the digital revolution, the, the develop, develop, property developers, for example, and city mayors, um, you, if you make somewhere that is same as everywhere else. I mean, um, why would people go? Why would people come there? So the actual need, we all, like, we all value our friends not because they're versions of other people, because they are their own person. I just think that one of the things that is really interesting to us in the studio is trying to um, amplify uh, idiosyncrasy, because the forces of procurement at on the large scale of city making are so powerful. Mm. You, you, you know when you, get, you go to, you can travel halfway across the world and an office building looks virtually identical to a building in an utterly different climatic location. Mm. And so that means uh, everyone can see what everyone else is doing and the materials might all come from the same place in the world, whether you're near the equator or further, much further north um, in a totally different climate. And it's sort of this funny, so you feel, you, you, it's not gonna happen by itself. The fact that there's stone under the ground over there or that building's being built near a forest no longer impacts places in the same way. There'll still be a shiny glass building near the forest. And so in a way with what we're trying to do is, uh, is find ways to make places that will connect with people rather than have that kind of dead feeling, and then thrill that the bus ticket's different. Oh, look, the bus tickets are different. You think, oh, it should be more than the bus ticket that's different if you're thousands of miles away. I was, I was interested. When you spoke about your work, you talked about projects, and I think you talk about projects very generally. You started, you know, you did three-dimensional design first at Manchester, then down here at the RCA. And um, I, I remember you know, looking through your early dissertations, uh, you know, as a student third year, you know, you're doing product design and things, but you always had aspirations to do, to work at a different scale. And that has been a sort of undercurrent of the work, even I think, mm. you, know, you set up the practice in 94, I think, and you already had a building commission in 2001, even though it didn't come about. So this, 
you have always been thinking across scale from the product designs from these lovely chairs we're sitting on now to, um, to bigger architectural projects. And I wanted, I guess, picking up on a couple of the things you've said here, to ask you how you found, you know, having, I guess, when you were young, thinking about scale and about architecture, but the reality of actually doing these kinds of architectural projects when, you know, the context is there, there's a planning, there's the, um, you know, the function, the client, all of those things. How you kind of translate those ideas you had and the aspirations and how they sort of come into building projects and the challenges, the excitements, the opportunities that you find in them and maybe to talk through a project you've got. Uh, okay. Go. Um, okay, go. Right. Um, <laughs> that was so, a cue. cue. You like that subtle? Stop going. Okay. So, um, uh, so if, if we jump to South Africa, um, the the this this was a um, a grain silo building that was on the waterfront and had been the tallest building in sub-Saharan Africa for half a century, and so. In a way, so originally we were commissioned to do a feasibility study to work out what, what the hell do you do with a giant building made from concrete tubes, um, which when you cut through, um, there, there was no turbine hall. There was just more tube, 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 square tubes, rectangular tubes. They also stored grain in the spaces between the circular um, tubular um, silo bins. Um, and then the context was Af Africa has very few world-class buildings and uh, so few, um, I suppose, commissions with ambition to try to create that. And it's a very complicated context. And the waterfront there at the very bottom of Africa wanted to try to uh, make a contrast to the rest of the waterfront where there were office buildings, apartments, hotels. Uh, and so then along came the function while we were doing this feasibility, which was which motivated us deeply in that there was... In a way, I've been a bit wary of the world's gone contemporary art crazy. And every... Uh, if you ever meet rich people, they've always got a collection. And they've always got some things. There's no far more than you. And, uh, and then, you know, there used to be just lonely... Um, the Institute of Contemporary Art kind of by itself 40 years ago, in a way, championing contemporary artwork. And, and then Tate Modern happened, and the Bilbao Guggenheim, and the world's gone. I mean, ev every city in Europe, Asia, North America's got at least one. And then when, when it hit that the whole of Africa had no major public institution, so the continent as big as the whole of Europe and North America combined, um, the chance to try to turn this structure uh, and harness it and make somewhere that meant that um, the amazing work that was done in Africa wasn't having to be sent somewhere else in the world or, um, or the artist having to relocate was really motivating. But they were very clear that tubes were rubbish for showing art in. So that was a kind of... The forces to knock it down were quite great. And so, uh, in a way, in, to, to what we were talking about earlier, the thing about how do you allow things to, to be particular and not find themselves inexorably turning into shiny office buildings or shiny something. And we didn't need a spaceship to land in Cape Town and sort of people were like, oh, yeah, look at the new architecture. <laughs> and it felt that this, the risk also when, I mean, here, probably everyone here got dragged along to our uh, or is being dragged for the first time today to a, a, an art museum or, of some sort but um, the, the challenge there was that um, hardly anyone has been to a museum at all, let alone uh, an art, a contemporary art museum. So the problem to solve, which engaged us, separate from the budget being very modest, was how do we get people to feel compelled to go inside? So uh, it seemed that the threshold is a scary place. You know, where do uh, yeah, it's not for me kind of feeling. And how could we make the threshold not sort of matter so much. So normally, so often, you know, whether something's an incredible shard or a gherkin or like, wow, or it's the silhouettes outsides tend to be super compelling. And it felt here, how could we make an in innard that was compelling? And we felt that we needed to make a space also to help people find their way around the structure. So 
uh, a, an atrium space seemed to make sense, so you wouldn't lose your girlfriend or your granny or whoever was there. And, um, but then when we were thinking, well, do we, do we cut a rectangular space out? And then people were also very clear we, that we must get rid of tubes, we, that we needed rectangular galleries in order for the mission of the museum to create sh shows that can be taken and so that Africa is curating shows that can travel. And if, if they all had to work with curvy spaces, we wouldn't have many other places that the shows could travel to. So we understood the brief and we needed to make 80 galleries as well. So a family of different sized boxes. And, um, but the thing with tubes is we all know what tubes are like and you get a crick in your neck looking up one or down one. Um, but if you cut through them in a curving plane, they do something interesting. And so we managed to get one of the original grains of corn that had been stored in the building. And we, because we'd been thinking, well, how do we make a space at the heart that's somehow true to this building? And we tried very rectangular um, cutouts or very perfect spherical cuts, and it was too predictable when you mix that with a very predictable plan. Uh, of these extruded concrete tubes. So I'm getting boring now. Okay. Um, so we got this one grain of corn and we scanned it to get the exact shape and enlarged that to be 10 stories high and then used that as the cutting form, like the ice cream cutting scoop, to cut it out of the heart of the building. Um, and so that we could then put 80 galleries around that um, and then the, the spiral staircase could be just a, like a drill bit that had drilled one of those tubes and the elevators, we designed them to have no top on so that you'd be able to just look up as you went up and put glass on. So this finished exactly a year ago today was the opening of it. Mm. Um, and so most of our work was advocating for trying to, within the budget we had, get the paint off, the magnolia paint, and get back to just you know, a, the rawness and the concrete wasn't grey, the concrete had warmth to it, and the stones were from Table Mountain just behind, where there used to be quarries. And um, so this process of constructing happened, and we were very engaged in that, and concrete takes approximately 100 years to achieve full hardness of the chemical reaction happening, and this was, it. we were just at 97 years when we came to cutting it, so it was really hard to cut. Um, and, uh, and to try to not let it crumble and fall apart. And we wanted to cherish all the, all the idiosyncrasy, that it would be very hard to justify in today's justifying day and age to have those quirks and particularity. Um, so the finished museum is just here. From the, from the top of it, you can see um, Robin Island where Nelson Mandela was kept prisoner. And um, so the finished project, we kept the existing structure and most of our work was trying not to, was rest restoration. And we've unwittingly become restoration experts, which is I never thought we would become. And it's, it's sort of thrilling, borrowing the soulfulness of existing structures that so many new buildings really struggle. And the procurement and the way new buildings happen, it's very hard to have that. Um, so uh, here we introduced, we cut the, we kept the existing steelwork for the tower but, and cut it open in order to put these windows in that we're trying to also connect as one of the tallest buildings in the waterfront from uh, itself uh, as a, a, some kind of um, lighthouse for the area. Um, and then uh, you see those little babies there? They're on top of the glass tube with a, with a quite terrifying view. <laughs> That's their view. Um, so this is the... This is the finished thing. Um, and you can see the same grain of corn was cut through the rectangular silos as well as the circular silos. And we glazed at the top. And that's, that's the entrance. You come in under the old hoppers, which were the taps where the corn used to drop onto conveyor belts that took it out onto the um, ships that then brought corn around the world from, from Africa. And... Yeah, most, most of our work was trying to work out how we could integrate the necessary structure while keeping as much as possible of all the specialness that a building like that gives you. Um, so um, this, it opened and 
Archbishop Desmond Tutu was there at the opening and took an imaginary phone call from Nelson Mandela saying it was okay. <laughs> and and uh, so, uh, so the, 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 there are these 80 galleries and it's, they've had twice the visitor numbers they'd hoped for and the things like that are thrilling because that's what you're working for. Um, and... Yeah, if any of you get a chance. And we randomly had good acoustics. And so that space is actually works really well for the um, Cape Town Symphonia, which was a kind of <laughs> moment. But there are also the plans for a skateboarding festival and things like that inside as well. So kind of keeping things in that perspective. It is. It's an extraordinary project. And I'd, you know, I'd followed it through from the ideas and seeing those renderings. But it does have a really compelling spatial presence. I don't know if people have been into it, but that central space is like very few that I've been into before. And I wondered, you know, you, you said, you mentioned here this, the photograph of the acoustics were a surprise. I wonder, were there any other surprises that suddenly revealed, you know, in building a building, having had the ideas, conceiving it, living it in your head for five, ten years, were there other things that surprised you seeing? Because this is the next big building, really, after Nanyang, wasn't it, that opened? Um, no, in Shanghai, there was the gigantic one. Oh, the big one, yeah. There's well, another very big one with, with Foster. But yes, where we collaborated with Foster, with Foster and Partners. Yeah. It was but so, four but and a half is, million square foot. Yeah, that one, yeah. that one was quite sizable. Yeah, I forgot that one. Yeah. Um, but, th but this was one in, in another way. I guess it's engineering, it's sculpturally really interesting. Was there anything else that surprised you of actually understanding how the building worked when you went down and saw it yourself? Um, we, we were working with a curator... Uh, and so there was the, the push and pull of their, their wish for the biggest possible galleries. Curators, eh? Curators. <laughs> and trying to, um, uh, trying to get the right balance that would connect with the city. And because there was, and, I mean, there was no culture of philanthropy mm. there. So this was being led by just a couple of people who were making this happen on a sort of shoestring. Mm. So we were trying to juggle the strategic perspective, the, uh, the flow of galleries to, in order to achieve what they wanted, but also sheer curator greed of how much Ooh. space they wanted Ooh. and trying yeah. to sort of get, the, get that balance right. So we were doing lots of studies, testing how small this atrium space could be. You know, could it be that big? Could it just be this big? And you're like, no, probably not. You'll get lost. <laughs> Um, so that things that was sort of part of it, but I mean there was a, a sense of purpose with everybody in it that was exciting, and you need. I think something that we've learned on projects is it's so important to have a happy project, and the the, the clients, the people who led this, were two of the best commissioners we've ever ever had mm -hmm. because they were always open to uh, to the conversation and were balancing. Budget, strategy, placemaking, art spaces, and, and we're always open. And sometimes it's a challenge when you work with people and then they sort of shut down and just like back off and they don't realise that the detail you are worrying about is going to be felt by people at the end. Mm. And it's important to juggle that in the mix as well. So it's this... I mean, building design is the most massive complicated, huge thing. And, and when I was studying um, on my degree course, when I was 20, 21, I, my dissertation was interviewing the designers of some of the biggest building projects and the people teaching the designers of big, big projects. And um, some of the architects were brilliant and let me come to their house and stay overnight in Buxton. And you know, some great people, some people who are Royal Academicians as well. And the thing that hit me was because I'd had a slight indignant, why are they so bad, kind of feeling, why well, I can't believe it. And then you found out why the pressures are so great and that the stamina and optimism and trying to not become hardened and cynical, which I met quite a few hardened and cynical wizened, because the pressures of, of including planning, you know, the planning budgets, uh, every aspect of it adds up to being something that no one person can hold all that. And so the process in the last 24 years with the studio has been sort of growing us, a team, a team of us that, that collaborate together and there's the main six group leaders and, um, 
and our, there's now 230 people in the, in the studio. And, it's try, and we've got, um, we've got one 76-year-old who comes in with a mandate to just interfere with us. Yeah. And we've just got a new uh, 69-year-old who's going to start coming in to interfere with us, who's a professor, and just comes in. And it's that sort of mix that we're trying to harness and trying to check, have we missed something? Have we missed something? Actually, I was gonna, the next thing I was going to show if I was going to totally dominate. A few, yeah. What were you going to do? Was going to just be, because I, in a way, I'm, uh, we, one project that we got to, which we're um, completing, which we're constructing at the moment, is in King's Cross. Um, and well, we're doing two buildings in King's Cross, which we may or may not have time to do, but we're, uh, our, our studio's just here. And so that's King's Cross Station and St Pancras Station. Um, and there's Central St Martins here. We're, we're building Google's headquarters here, which is actually longer than King's Cross Station. It's terrifying, and I'll talk to you about that terror in a bit. But the, here, these are, um, this is Granary Square, some of you may know, and these two long buildings are called the Coldrops Viaducts, and, they, and this, in a way, relates to the planning point and mm. the sense of it, projects being much bigger than yourself always. Uh, and... So these were the, the trains used to come and go on these viaducts, the bits in the middle, and drop coal onto the horses and carts that would then come out around London and drop the coal into the coal holes in the pavements, you know, the cast iron covers that you see all around London. And we were asked whether we could turn this... Uh, whether, well, we were originally asked whether we could clean up the brick and put a couple of fancy bridges in. And it just felt to us that our experience of working on projects which were social, bringing people together in a retail context, we knew that that wasn't what was the right thing here. Um, we'd worked in Hong Kong on a very large project that took seven years, and we had 63 three-hour workshops with the client who, um, for that project. And so when we, saw, when we were asked to do two fancy bridges here, and we knew this isn't Covent Garden, and Covent Garden exists already, and... Uh, in the human dynamic of a shopping place, about 13 metres is roughly the distance that works well between one shop and another shop uh, across a space, just like sort of between here at the back row. Um, there's a distance where you can just about make eye contact, and uh, so if someone's holding some swimming trunks over there, you can think, oh, I don't need swimming trunks, I'll go and have a look, or something like that. <laughs> Whereas if... So the thing here was that these two kind of broken Kit Kat fingers, at the front, they're 39 metres. So the forces driving you, even if you do clean up the brick, to go and think, I'll go home, actually, um, is greater than the forces keeping you together. So we argued that what they needed was actually the most quiet bridges, invisibly quiet bridges, and they needed a heart. There's, we're not experts at Feng Shui, but two broken things, like where, where do you meet someone? Where's, where's the the bit that brings you together. And it seems so often in um, the public realm is something that we are fascinated by. We're in our team now, we um, have been working on city-scale projects where we're planning pieces of city. And we just come back and again and again and again as to how do you design streets and places that roll you towards each other rather than away from each other. And um, so we argued that it needed another floor, another floor on top to, to stitch the two together. But normally, when somebody builds a new building next to an old building, they sort of feel like they're at the Acropolis or something. It's like, oh, but it's a glass box, because, you know, it's the hero. And I just, but this was the Victorians building IKEA sheds. And so they, it's felt that was fake false um, worship and that actually the, the, what would the Victorians have done? They wouldn't have over um, revered um, but we, we wanted to borrow all the soulfulness that those structures had already um, but so when we were developing a design we developed some initial thoughts about taking the roofs and somehow stitching together to make a heart and it, this sort of evolved we were looking at whether we could use the art of roofing to, to, bring, to bring these together. I haven't actually shown these before, so um, it's a bit the wrong way around. But. So we then had meetings with the city planners 
And the, there was, so this was, here's a picture of us meeting City Plan, Camden Council. And, and we met English Heritage, they were very positive, and then we met the planners. And then you see the frowning guy. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Ed Jarvis, who's the urban designer from Camden Council. And you know, he said, kind of went, no, it's no, no, it's not, no. And we of course thought, oh, it's wrong. And then, but then we, we went away and, and sat together and just took, sort of absorbed it. And because of his input, the design got, we believe, stronger and better. And um, so, the, so there were these the historic structures. And so the, the, the comment was really, how can we still express the two-ness, the twinniness, rather than fuse into one thing? And we sort of took that. And that, so the, the scheme that we took to look to was to take the two roofs and stitch them together so that they become fused to make a place that simultaneously, sorry, I'll jump to that, makes a space that the art school can use for the fashion shows and you know where to meet granny or your girlfriend or whoever um, and, uh, and that that simultaneously is making a space looking out over, over London that is particular rather as... So we're always trying to find excuses and reasons that that reasons that are there can grow into something that is specific, rather than uh, trying not to have our own kind of, this is how we do... Th I mean, you'll see a few of our projects have curves in. That tends to be because the contexts tend to be the most box-tastic contexts. If there was a curve-tastic context, we'd probably be the first people to suggest a box. But it's trying to make things that complement what's around and are complemented by each other. Um, and so... This, in, in a way, this is about the fusing of both together. So this opens on the 26th, allegedly, or 26th of October, which, if you walked around the site today, you might be uh, surprised to know that that was going to happen. This isn't... No, 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 this isn't, this isn't it today. This isn't it today. No, so we're a bit more further, further than this. They're right. building very fast there. Um, but the... Uh, so... No, right, OK, I need to reassure you. OK, yeah. this, was, this was a month ago, so there is a roof that we even had to have left-handed and right-handed roof tilers. Uh, the slate is the same slate. It's from the same seam that the original slate 180 years ago was from. Um, and, uh, and there's the space inside is all coming together. And, um, yeah, it, it's... Um, I think if you need a shave, I think there's going to be someone who there who does shaving and things like that. And for different retailers, not, not, not the only thing they're going to do, but... Um, so, but the one thing that um, I just brought along a couple of things because there's a strategic dimension of why would somebody come to a place with, uh, with these old buildings? How do you make a, a heart to that? How do you make space, functional space for uh, 50, 60 different retailers? How do you inspire them to be not ordinary themselves? And also, how do you meet a developer's budget, which is not like a national budget for a monster museum or something. Um, and so it felt there was this move. We found a way to make it affordable to make this. But we also wanted something you could touch. And we, the, the budget couldn't stretch. To, so we ended up interested, really, in and on all the things we work on. is the, Also, what do you touch? What is it you're going to touch? And um, so there's, at the smallest scale, um, we in... In um, Hong Kong, we did this, this big, the big project with the 63 three-hour design workshops. Uh, that's not, I'm not bitter about that at all. I remember that. <laughs> but it was like an apprenticeship and learned so much. But one of the things we pushed for there on this £150 million project was that the first bit to be finished was the toilets. And we, we made... We made I actually haven't got it here. You're spared. <laughs> It's on toilet YouTube, door hinges. You are, so you look up our toilet door hinge yeah. on YouTube. Um, but we made a, we invented a new kind of toilet door hinge, and also then the lift buttons we did. And we didn't think like, so. There was 150 million pounds, and you meet someone and go, "Yeah, your toilets and the lift button." It was so fascinating to us that, that what people see really, what what where is value really, and often it's at that bit you touch. 
And so we, you know, the lifts we could afford in King's Cross are very plain, very simple, but we've, we just worked with the buttons um, and a, a bit influenced by in, in Moscow, went to Moscow where, so have you been in these, some of the subway stations are just absolutely phenomenal. And there's one where there's all these bronzes everywhere. And there's bronze sculptures of, to do with glorifying war and sacrifice, all these things. And there's also a dog somewhere in there. And the dog is just sort of there sitting like this uh, with the shiniest nose because every fifth, sixth person who walks past it touches dog nose. And there's this buffness. Um, and actually in New York, there's, uh, where we are doing a few projects, there's also a pair of sculptures in a public place, a man and a woman. And... and I'm not going to tell you which bits are shiny, <laughs> but um, the, I just thought very quickly. So we're, we're in spirit of the bits I wasn't going to tell you got shiny. So one of the lift buttons, you know, over time, we're, just, we're going to have thousands of people touching them. So one of the lift buttons is, is uh, well, they're all different. There's six lift cores. Um, and so these are bronze just going to be bolted onto the concrete. Um, and I'm looking forward to over time how buffed that's going to get. So these are, these are this, different They're all ones. different. There's six cores. They're all different. So this one, the accumulation of all those fingers touching, I hope will um, give some kind of life and age. But this, in terms of the this is the kind of a bit trying to have. So, Thomas, are these at different... Does each level have a different form and shape of a, of a lift button or it's different cores so you know that if it's like that thing it's you go back to, to try to help people not get lost so yeah. there's the six cores and so there's the penile cores <laughs> and there's the, the bulging one there's some ones that are but we're just letting I, I always found it funny that there's sort of art in a museum and then the world and so why can't artistic thinking permeate and find it. And I've always enjoyed ideas when you find them when you're not expecting them. Mm. And um, so, and I think that's why our toilet door hinge, and things like that. So, it, I suppose that's there are already amazing people doing amazing things in galleries. So it just felt, well, let's try and do things where you, your expectations actually low. And the lovely thing about though, it's, it's, I was thinking it's like a car park. You know, you've got to remember, was I on the green floor? And you, yeah, I'm on the green floor. That's right. There's something lovely about that, and it's quite subtle that you might, you know, you'll you'll slowly remember. You'll go back to touch the same thing. You remember, oh yeah, this is where I was. This is I'm in the right place. I think there's a subtlety to what you're talking about that isn't yelling at you, but it's just touching the senses very I hope nicely. So, I hope so. I hope so. I was struck by one of the the previous image you showed there, which was also showing the the cold drops from above. Um, and it's got the gas holders next to it. And it made me really think, actually, about how... Because I walked past it doing some homework last week, thought I'd check out how far, how far along it was. And, it re I mean, it, it's nearly there. I mean, a couple of the Tom Dixon stores started to open. It's, you know, you can start to feel it coming, coming to life. And, you know, it seems to be quite fitting with the, um, with the industrial language of the gas holders next to it. And I think there's something mm -hmm. very interesting happening there. So maybe it is a nice time for you to talk about... The Google project, because I'm interested in how you work, you know, you're talking a little bit more, and if you could talk a little bit more about context, because we've seen two projects mm -hmm. from around the world. You know, what makes these London projects for you, and what makes them King's Cross? Because you've lived, you know, your studio's been in King's Cross for 25 years now. It's a place you know. Um, you've seen it go through the changes. Yeah. You know, you're not one of the people who's come in, now it's all gentrified. You know, you've been there through its all of those things and I wonder if you can reflect on you know you're now contributing to its future having seen what it was mm -hmm. and I wonder if you could give us a little hint about how you've how those kind of things have informed your designs um, okay um, the yeah so we, we were commissioned about um, five and a half years ago to work with Google to try to I mean they initially in, in Mountain View in California where they were needing workspace for uh, was 5,000 people more every year. And so the, the, the context was that the works, they'd never been physical before. You know, the, the, I'm trying to think the best way. The majesty of Google was its search, the Google Earth, this <gasps> to the world that we'd never had before. Um, and then th there was 
but it'd never been physical before. And so there'd been this thing of using up all the old, let's see if I've got a picture, all the old buildings from Silicon Valley from the um, 70s and 80s. They, a lot of those companies that some of the, oh, it's a bit too blurred to see, but they all kind of had their time and then sort of evaporated away. And so what companies like Google had been doing was taking, taking over their old headquarters and sort of filling them up. But everywhere was car parking all around, and yet there was this, the bay uh, and a context of nature and creeks, but car, car dominance. And so in terms of that context, it seemed one of the main things was to try to get the nature back again and try to um, sort of move away also from the kind of, yay, kind of work environment space where it's sort of toys to, that felt like the time had moved forward and had been this format of stick a slide in and a beanbag had been copied and moved on and it didn't. It was kind of how does a company deepen and mature and really make space that can work for itself in, in the longer term. And the biggest clue we, we felt there was in, if I show, was in the, um, in the bay. So this is Mountain View is the area that Google are mainly based. And over here, uh, in, if I can pull back slightly, but I can't, there are airship hangouts just here. This is NASA's airbase called the Moffett Airfield. And Google managed to lease the whole of the NASA's airbase. And on that airbase uh, are these incredible airship hangars. Um, and there's two timber ones. And this is, uh, they've taken the, the skin off one of the, the, the metal one now. Uh, and then the, the timber ones are just these incredible structures. And it felt when we were trying to wrestle with what's, what is the way to make a workspace now? And what, when, when the world is so fluid, and even when speaking to Google and saying, well, What's, what do you imagine you're going to be doing in 15, 20 years? And they then go, we'll be up there. Yeah. And you're sort of, right, okay, we'll be in space. So how does that, you know, normally that question gets people saying really useful things to what you're working on. And so it felt, how can we make workspace space that's truly flexible for whatever the future may hold? And it felt that the, hang the approach of looking at these as making new hangars to be in was more appropriate than seeing it as office buildings. And so we began a, a process which was really trying to see how we could make a big, flexible, open space, then treat the accommodation almost like furniture that we put in there that might have whatever ceiling height is, in, is appropriate to its time now, but that could change in future. And then let nature be outside and flow inside um, and so our, our initial thing was to make a series of these hangers for them. And uh, then it, it felt we needed to sort of move away from spaces with poor daylight. And um, could we give everyone fantastic daylight? Could we let everybody feel that they were close, closer to nature somehow? And, uh, and, so it, and then we were also trying to think, well, how can we make a place that engenders the making and working rather than the feeling of even being an office. This is a picture of our studio. And um, felt like, how do you scale that up? Um, and we, so in each one of these buildings, one of them has 4,000 people, one has 3,000 people working. And we're, we're so used to the people near the window get the daylight and then the people close to the lifts get no daylight, and, but they can see it in the distance. And... So we got interested in how do you take big teams and, but let them still be teams, but make those teams of each project that's within a bigger organisation, pull them apart from each other and let them have their own space so that you, you've got... I mean, what we dreamed of was could you make one floor with everyone on one floor with fantastic daylight for everybody... Um, and then by lifting that floor off the ground, put all the functions of the meeting rooms and the kitchens and toilets and all of those things, stick those all underneath, and then uh, 
lift each of these plates, so they're like a series of tectonic plates, all at differing heights, so that the people in the middle are looking over the, over the tops of the next one and the next one. So it's like a mountain of these plates, just subtly lifting and lifting. So each team can still feel it has its own identity. Um, and then we put in different stair, stair to, like the lift, different lift buttons in effect in King's Cross, different stairs, so each of these courtyards between these plates is its own special place. Um, and then we also, each one can have its own art, artworks or planting, and then you put all the teams in and then drop some columns into that, and then a skin made from photovoltaic, so the whole skin is made from solar panel. So it's, it's a hybrid, it's like a tent, it's uh, semi-tensile uh, as well as with some rigidity, and then cutting through that, you, we then get clerestory light coming through from the sides. So it generates all the electricity needed for the building um, and harvests the, all, any rainwater that um, might come. So there's this sense of a stratification of a lot of space and air. Um, there's the main working space that can be a whole variety, almost like the Burning Man Festival that happens. Um, and then underneath that is a world where no one's permanently working, which you dip into, and then the landscape flows through. Um, and so yeah, and the, these are in construction. Um, this, this actually was exhibited in the Royal Academy Summer Show. This was one of the models of what we're building. Um, and so all the top, whole top surface is generating power. And there are, at the moment, we're constructing four of these in... in um, California, and they're all gradually appearing, so it's, it's getting exciting, so over the next uh, year and a half, they should really start to pull together, but you, you see the, oh no, I've lost the slide, okay, this internal heights, the, the, the highest are, there's almost three times the height of this room, so there's real space for, if they're working on balloons, you get, get balloons in there, if they're working on uh, space technology, you can have pieces of those things in amongst the engineers and teams working there. Um, so then jumping to King's Cross, the challenge is very different because there isn't the, the space that there is that in California. And there, the, the Google building that needs to sit. Um, and it, there's this King's Boulevard, the, the route that goes from King's Cross Station up to Granary Square which is where Central St. Martin's is, the entire street on the right-hand side, if you're walking up, is one building. So it's, it's, it's ludicrously big. Uh, and um, the, so the challenge there, and, because, and its height is limited because of the St. Paul's viewing corridor. So I don't know whether you know, but there's things limiting heights of buildings in London because you need to protect views of St. Paul's Cathedral. So that meant this becomes long, 10 stories high, to, be, to keep the view clear. I'm not sure if it's from Primrose Hill or um, Hampstead Heath or which one this is. Um, but it, it, the outcome is a building that's the same height as the Shard, sideways. So the Shard is fantastic, but I'm not sure you'd want to walk for four and a half minutes of your life next to it if it was sideways, you know. So this, and we, we've been... Uh, in a way struck, and one of our challenges of our time is that the scale of everything. In the past, a typical building might have been eight meters wide on a street, eight meters, 10 meters on a high street. And now, bit by bit, for all sorts of reasons, sites get bought, joined together, and you have massive building plots with big lobbies to offices and things that are 40 meters wide. And suddenly the street becomes duller because you don't have so many doors, you don't have so many differences. And so the challenge seemed to be how do you, I mean, as potentially one of the longest office buildings um, ever made, how do you make, how do you not kill a street? And that's still a work in progress here. Um, but one clue to that, uh, to our team, and we've been collaborating on both of these projects with a New York based architect called Bjarke Ingalls, designing together. So we designed together the project in Shanghai with Foster and Partners as well. Um, so this working together is something we enjoy when it's, when it's a, a collaborator who you've got things to, where you're mutually curious. Uh, and 
So the clue for us was actually Ledbury Market, and all around Britain, in market towns, there have been these buildings where, uh, where there's a, a building structure, but by lifting it up, it then makes space underneath for another form of life to go on. And so it seemed exciting. What if we got this building as long as the Eiffel Tower and lifted it up by two stories and let it... So we don't pretend it isn't one big building, which was easy to find yourself... How do we design it so it looks like 15 buildings or something? And just felt we don't want to pretend in any way. But your perception of the world around tends to be the first two, two, three stories. And that interested us. So... Um, so what if we lifted it up and built a village underneath? That that changed so over time. So there's, there's in a way, like the wing, the wing of this bigger organisation could make space for baby versions of itself, of by others or whatever happened underneath. And so that has been evolving. And the building is designed in quite an interesting way as the opposite of what we're doing in California. By we're making each floor triple height and then putting the service functions, which in California are underneath that workspace, we're hanging them underneath. I don't know if you can see on the top left, which means daylight can go deep in. Because it's three stories high, so you've got 10 meter high, the daylight gets right to the center of the building. Um, and the blue bits are the uh, meeting rooms, kitchens, bathrooms. So everyone, again, will have great daylight in their workspace. So, this, and so the, the part in light grey is movable and changeable over time. And just like some of the best buildings, most useful buildings, are old industrial buildings that can be readapted and, and the least flexible are the ones that are designed specifically for just one function with no built flexibility built in. So I can feel there was, I think there was someone doing a splash to at the back. So, um, you know, there's, uh, you know, this, the project is in construction and will be finished in three years from now. And uh, it's in the ground floor is still in development. And um, I hope that um, it can um, be a generator of a social dimension, which is the intention with that ground floor. Um, and you've got, well, thank you, Thomas. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to see these buildings coming to London, you know, having seen the ones that have been built and Cold Rocks next week, and you've just announced um, Olympia as well, which is out there in the news. I think you're talking about it a little bit later in the week. Um, but I thought I might just finally end on one sort of moment of where we started, and it's going back to the idea of creativity and invention. And I guess, you know, a lot of the projects you've shown us are, are projects for clients, but also quite often, in your, certainly in your early practice, and there still are some pro projects now, I think, that you do, which are self-initiated, that you know, they, they don't necessarily ask for a client. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think it's an interesting, and probably quite an important, it seems to me it's quite an important aspect of your work because you drive it. It's your, that kind of invention, that creativity that has to push it. Um, and I just, you, yeah. Um, Maybe you can just reflect upon what those sorts of projects offer you and how they feed into the big ones and why you do them and what their heart is. And we've got one minute for it. <laughs> OK. Um, well, I just always felt that it's really important to not be manipulated by what you get asked to do, to try to think of what you think matters and try to work on that. And, um, and so just because no one's asked you to do something, there are fashions of our time of things that happen uh, and you, that you need to be careful, I guess, in the bigger picture of things as to whether that's still the right thing to do. And so in the studio, we have things that we're asked to do and we only do something if we're really excited about it because we'll be rubbish at it unless we're really excited by it. Um, but we also have things which we try to do which is, you think, where you think, oh, why has no one done that? Oh, I, I could do that. And you try, and sometimes they're pathetic. Without a client, often they take far too long. Mm -hmm. But like this table, actually, is one of those things. We um, were asked to design a, a carpet um, for someone. And I was like, thinking, oh, carpet? And, um, thinking, well, and the carpet started by thinking about how carpets are all always the wrong proportion. I haven't actually bought many carpets. <laughs> but as a theoretical thing, you go and you see them in a carpet shop or, and they, you think, well, my, they're square. And you think, well, my room isn't square or it's long and thin. And you think, well, my room's square. 
And so I was interested in proportions. So that led to an idea of could you make a carpet that could change proportions? And, you know, with garden trellis and so mini... And that then, they were there thinking, oh, yeah, you could do that. And then that led on to, well, what if you lifted that up and put legs on it? And so um, would you be my assistant? So this, um, this is one of the things. It's made from compressed paper. Um, and um, it, it, it does the thing. It does the So, so, you know, we're trying to develop um, sort of different, different scales. Uh, we couldn't bring it in because it was just too big, but we um, did a, a large version of this. And we also even actually did a, uh, a... Then took that to the next scale, saying, well, if you could do it like that, what if you built layers up? Could it be a substance? So this one, a round table that's um, 1.8 metres becomes 4.5. I mean, it sort of fills the thing when it stretches right out. Very very hard to make, and it's engineered by a robotic um, arm maker in Pennsylvania. But it was trying to push an idea and just sort of push where it could go. Um, and so the, that somehow when we get time, and, it, and the other one we would like to try is this, uh, we're taking this to the next scale, that which was just, so this is a 3D thing. So it's, a, it's an object. So basically you can make any, th any object stretch or compress. And... Um, so, no, we need to sort of, that's one way of kind of thinking, yeah, what are we going to do with that? Haven't figured it out, but uh, need to. Well, Thomas, thank you. That was a brilliant way, I think, to finish the Festival of Ideas. This is the second, the second but one event, and there's something else about to come in, so we have to draw this, this afternoon to a close. So on behalf of everybody here in the audience, thank you for your time. Um, <laughs>